It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something to your own life. Beat it up and I've got no peace. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang. The government for hire in the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting down your neck. The border trap is some the ground with that low plane flying and up for overflow, but in the corner to put in a little secret devil, secret devil world in your own knees. See your heart, tell me the surrender in the river of the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it in British life. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. And Nurse Amy. Sorry, hey. he has such a mysterious voice. I was trying to be mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the dark heart of the city is pretty hot. Hot as Hades. That's right. And sure enough, a heat wave has enveloped, well, gosh, the Midwest and the eastern parts of the country, affecting 32 states and more than 150. 50 million people. Gosh, uh, well, I mean, the estimates are more than that, actually, in a lot of cases. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a benevolent bastion of beauty in a belligerent world. I'm Joe Holden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Nurse Amy. Uh, my real name is Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And I am crackly today in my voice. You know what I am suffering from? Pistachio allergy. Well, she says. I just had some pistachio She says. Nuts. See? She that's what the says, doctor says to the nurse. She says. But it's very possible what that I am. What you're supposed to say is, yes, dear, yes, you're right. Yes, dear, you're right. <laughs> but it's also possible that I am suffering from mm-hmm. presbyphonia. Presbyphonia is the term for the changes in voice that occur in old age. So your voice pitch gets higher, you get a little gravelly, your volume gets a little lower. Boy, it is I don't pretty know. kooky. I've had I've had checkups f- check by different fine. specialists. You sounded fine yesterday. Well, someday, well, maybe well, I'm not old, well, I'm not younger today, so <laughs> maybe it isn't presbyphonia. Who the heck knows? And you are friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a petulant panther. Yes, the panthers can be petulant around here. That is easily annoyed. So watch out when you call here, kitty kitty, because you might get more than you bargained for. Here's our disclaimer. That's like that commercial with that lady who needed glasses. She couldn't see. Oh, right. And she said, here, kitty kitty. And And it was a raccoon, right, or something? Or a skunk, maybe. a skunk or a possum, yes. It was something she didn't want to sleep in her bedroom. (laughs) Anyway... 
All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy <laughs> strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a darn thing we say. But in times of trouble, you know what? You got to show the world you got more sense than a box of rocks and get the training and education that you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? You do need that. So look around and I'll bet that you'll find no better medical kit than the ones that you'll find in Nursamy's entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. I challenge you to compare <laughs> our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. And I bet you'll agree that our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. If you want more proof, just check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. We'll give you what, we'll get you whatever paperwork that you need. And don't forget to subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net to get special coupons in our newsletters. You'll be glad you did. Well, the National Weather Service has issued excessive heat warnings and heat advisories in the Plains, Midwest, and much of the East to warn residents of dangerously hot conditions. It is a scorcher out there, guys. A widespread blackout last Saturday in New York City actually left much of Manhattan without electricity. I can't imagine being stuck in those apartments in Manhattan, which may not even have a balcony. Maybe if you're lucky, you can actually open the windows. Some of these walls are actually just glass, so you can't even open them. But boy, oh boy, that is scary as heck to me. The authorities claimed the outage was caused not by heat, but by a transformer fire. But last time I looked, well, excessive heat does lead to fire. Uh, I would say that probably seventy to 80,000 people were left without power during the blackout. And more blackouts are going to be possible just in the next few days in New York, Chicago, and certainly other big cities as things get worse. They're trying to do some austerity measures, maybe uh, telling people to turn up their air conditioners which is, uh, well, easy to say, hard to do in this kind of heat where heat indices are going up into the 115s. And I think in Iowa, there was 119 heat index. What? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Even in Iowa, places like that, things are expected to be worse in the afternoon. So absolutely, if not downright deadly, as a matter of fact. Absolutely. There have already been, I think, six people who have passed away already. That's absolutely right. And I think there's definitely going to be more on the way. I'm fortunate to say, but it is a really dangerous situation out there. You may not consider this to be a natural disaster, but a heat wave is definitely a natural disaster. It actually kills more people than everything short of maybe Hurricane Katrina. Wow. Now, the Heat indexes are heat indices, I'm going to call indices. them. Indices. Indices. I think you're correct there. Are indeed what is the problem. It's not just the actual temperature of the air. Mm -hmm. It is indeed the humidity as well as whether you are actually physically in the sun or not. And this is something that causes major problems not only 
in the U.S., but also in Europe. Europe had a major heat wave just a few weeks ago. It's going to have another one next week. In 2015, there were thousands that died in major heat waves in underdeveloped countries like India and Pakistan. And even in Europe, thousands died in a heat wave in not ancient times, but indeed in the year 2003. This week's heat dome over much of the U.S. is caused by hot air that's unable to escape due to high-pressure systems over much of the central and eastern part of the country. And these systems act like a lid on a pot, causing temperatures to soar. It's not just the heat. Storms may actually form at the edges, possibly leading to tornadoes in some areas. Now, making matters worse, that heat index is really being affected by the humidity Where is this humidity coming from? In the Midwest, in places like Iowa, by Uh the way, when you think of Iowa, you think of corn. Sure enough, it might be coming from, of all things, cornfields. Oh, that makes sense. Right. The huge amount of land that's dedicated to growing corn in the Midwest Mm -hmm. increases air humidity. And that's because corn actually sweats, just like humans sweat in hot weather. This humidity is going to have the effect of increasing the heat index. Now, rural areas aren't going to be the only ones affected. Urban areas feel the heat, and they're really feeling it badly in New York City. Paved roads and concrete buildings absorb more heat, and they cool down slower at night. And this causes nighttime temperatures to stay high, forming what we call heat islands that stay hot 24 hours a day. So how exactly does heat kill a person? Your body core temperature is regulated for optimal organ function. When body core temperature rises excessively, we call that hyperthermia, toxins leak, inflammation occurs, and cells die. Fatalities can occur very quickly, honestly, if you don't intervene, even in those who are normally pretty physically fit. Even in modern times, hyperthermia carries a 10% death rate, although it occurs mostly in the elderly and infirm these days. You might think that the most danger for heat problems will be in areas like Well, South Florida, where we are here. Yes, absolutely. Right, which has a subtropical climate all year round. But citizens of Miami and other tropical areas or subtropical areas are pretty accustomed to heat. And less heat-related deaths will occur here than in other parts of the country that normally have very mild weather. Residents of Minnesota, for example, would have less experience with extreme heat. And some buildings may not have Air conditioners, Air that is a big thing. That's a huge problem in Europe. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of hotel rooms. You have to be careful if you're going to make a visit over there that the rooms that you stay in, if it's summer, that they do have air conditioning because a lot of them just don't. So you have to go for the bigger chain names like a Hilton or something like that because generally speaking, they're pretty sure to have air conditioning, but other little chains, not so much. It's it's frightening. And we're not talking about the actual residents of these countries. Most of them don't have air conditioners. And they're used to it. And they're right. right. They're used so to not having it. So we come over and visit, and we're used to having air conditioning at everything we visit. Grocery stores, even if you go into a convenience store at a gas station, that tiny little room has air conditioning. A lot of the places that exist over there, they just open their windows and doors. And that includes even castles over there. We've traveled and visited castles and manor houses and stuff that that just never had 
any kind of air conditioning or climate control, as you can imagine. Didn't exist and it wasn't added. <laughs> That's right. And so all of this puts people at more risk for hyperthermia or heat-related emergencies. Right. Older people, especially, might have a limited ability to seek help. Those people are the ones that I think are at risk and maybe people at nursing homes or maybe young children in nursery schools. Well, those are the kind of folks that could possibly really suffer in heat waves like this. Well, I think what happens is they start having these symptoms. They don't really recognize that it's something that's unusual, and they kind of just go with it and don't complain, and they fall into the symptoms so deeply that then you get into this confusion. I know you're going to talk about the symptoms, but I think once you hit a level of confusion for a young child who may not have been taught symptoms to look for, even to raise their hand and say, hey, I don't feel well. And older folks getting confused, they just don't call for help. They don't think to pick up the phone or tell somebody next to them that they're not feeling well. That's true. They just sort of get lost in it and it becomes too late. Well, too late because they actually go into heat exhaustion and then heat stroke. Yep. That the ill effects that are due to overheating as is known as heat exhaustion if it's mild to moderate. And if severe, we call it heat stroke. Some people call it sunstroke. Mm -hmm. Now, heat exhaustion usually does not result in permanent damage. But heat stroke definitely does. Indeed, it could permanently disable or even kill its victim. It's a medical emergency that has to be diagnosed and treated promptly. Simply having muscle cramps or a fainting spell, that does not necessarily mean that you're having a major heat-related medical event. You'll see heat cramps in kids often that have been running around on a hot day and just getting them out of the sun and maybe massaging the affected muscles and giving them some hydration. That usually resolves the problem. Now, in heat exhaustion, in addition to muscle cramps and fainting and those kind of symptoms, you get confusion, you get a rapid pulse, you flush, you sweat profusely, you may feel vaguely nauseous. Some people actually vomit. A uh, headache occurs, and your temperature elevation can really rise. The body core can actually go all the way up to about 105 degrees. If you don't take any action to cool this person, then they may go on to heat stroke. Now, heat stroke, in addition to all the possible signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion, can manifest as a loss of consciousness. They can have seizures. They can actually bleed in unusual places like the urine or there may be bloody vomit. Hmm. Breathing becomes an issue. It becomes very rapid. It becomes very shallow. And if that's not dealt with quickly, well, shock and organ malfunction certainly will ensue, and that probably would lead to that person dying. In heat stroke, the skin is hot to the touch, but it's sort of dry. It's because sweating may not be absent. Why is that? Because the body makes efforts to cool itself down by sweating until it hits a temperature of about 105 degrees. At that point, thermal regulation breaks down, and that ability to use sweating as a natural temperature regulator fails. The body temperature actually can rise to 110 degrees Fahrenheit or more. That is pretty amazing. In some circumstances, the patient's skin actually might seem a little cool to you. Now, it's important to realize that it's the body core temperature that's elevated. A person in shock may feel cold and clammy to the touch. That can fool you, but if you could take a reading with the thermometer, that'll reveal the patient's true status. 
There may also be some sweat left over from when the person was in heat exhaustion and now has transported itself to a person that has heat stroke. And so there may still be a little sweat left. That probably would evaporate very, very quickly. When overheated patients are no longer able to cool themselves, it's up to their rescuers to do the job. And if you suspect hyperthermia in somebody, you should immediately remove them from the heat source, get them out of the sun, for example, remove their clothing, drench them with cool water or ice. Some people even take a sheet, wrap it in, wet it with cold water or wrap it in ice and make them like a burrito and wrap them up. Uh, that's something that is a actually known hyperthermia treatment. Uh, you should elevate the person's legs above the level of the heart. That's the shock position. And you should fan this person or otherwise ventilate them so it can help with heat evaporation. Now, if you have moist cold compresses, you can't just put them in a tub full of ice water. Well, what you need to do is to place those compresses or those cold packs in an area where they'll do the most good. Those areas are the neck, the armpit, and the groin. Why? Because major blood vessels pass close to the skin in these areas. And cold packs are going to more efficiently cool the body core if you do that. Now, there are new studies by the military that suggest that cooling off the hands and feet does a good job as well. As a matter of fact, I actually saw this study being performed or a video of this study being performed. They took members of the military and actually gave them heat exhaustion by just putting them in hot weather and running them on a treadmill until they couldn't stand it anymore. This is the kind of test that I think is almost ethically inappropriate, but... I don't know who would sign up for that, honestly. I saw those guys, and they were just sweating to death. I don't know how they stayed on the treadmill with the heat so intense in that room. I think it... was horrible. Oh, it's horrible. I wouldn't be able to stand it. It was hard to watch. (laughs) It was, but indeed, actually putting their hands and their feet in cold water Mm -hmm. actually helped them cool Cool down. off. Amazing. Well, oral rehydration, that's also useful to replace the fluids that are lost in somebody with heat stroke. But unfortunately, that's only if the patient is awake and alert. If your patient has altered mental status, as most people with heat stroke would have, he or she might swallow the fluid into their airways, and that causes damage to the lungs and puts you in much worse shape than when you started. In a heat wave, it's just important to check on people, check on the elderly folks, you got old folks at home or old folks that live in the area or, or in a city that is having a, a terrible heat wave, give a call to them and see how they're doing. You have to check on the very young. You have to check on people who have chronic medical illnesses. And you got to do it regularly. And you got to do it often because these people are going to have difficulty seeking help. And you might just save a life if you're vigilant. So you got to know the warning signs and how to help those people with hyperthermia. Now, here's some tips to avoid heat exhaustion and heat stroke this summer. If you're at home, I want you to keep your blinds closed because it can make up to a 20-degree difference in the temperature of the house. If you have drapes, they should be white to reflect the heat. And speaking of reflecting heat, you might consider putting some reflective film on the windows, especially those windows that get the most exposure. Oh, yeah. You should consider cooking outside because ovens and stoves give off a lot of heat, and that heat... If it's cooked in the house, obviously, it will stay trapped in the house. You want to run your ceiling fan counterclockwise. That's interesting 
I didn't know that this was an important thing. I knew that you should run it counterclockwise, but the reason why I wasn't sure about it. in the summer, cool air collects near the floor while hot air rises to the ceiling. And counterclockwise, the blades of a ceiling fan push air down, which forces the cool air near the floor to move outward and then redistribute. So the movement of air can help a room feel several degrees cooler. One thing that's useful is putting a nice big bowl of ice, we've done this a bunch of times, in front of your standalone fan. If you have a standalone fan, that's all you've got, but you can make ice, take that ice, put in a bowl of it right in front of the fan, and that will help make the air that's being blown around cooler. If you feel hot at night, well, you might consider dipping your feet in a basin of ice-cold water, or you might consider spraying yourself with a spray bottle with cold water. That might be something that you could uh, do. I'm not sure I would use alcohol. Some people do use um, rubbing alcohol, but you can absorb too much of that into your system and might not be good for your health. Now, how about in the car? Just about every car in the United States has air conditioning. So there is air conditioning, but you want to keep up to date with coolant changes as recommended by the manufacturer, your local dealer could check your refrigerant level mm-hmm. before the summer, you know, in late spring perhaps. We just had our evaporator changed uh-huh. in the car. All right, there you the go. Expedition. And that's going to help us through. Because it was blowing cool, muggy air and not cold. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. so wow, even that it, cool, cool around here is not good enough. Because it is hot, man. It really is. Uh, you want to keep an emergency kit in your car with water for hydration purposes. You want some of those shake-and-break ice packs, or not ice packs, or cold packs that you'll find in our medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. You definitely want to have some of those. And we do sell those as individual items, don't we? I believe I have those up. There you go. And uh, for goodness sake, do not leave your kids or, or your pets unattended in hot cars. And by the way, don't forget about your pets. Your pets, especially if they spend part of the day outside, they are going to fry. I remember we had a corgi once that actually had heat stroke oh, poor thing. by the pool, and that was something that was scary. We managed to get the poor thing out of it, but it is something it happens. that happens to pets as well. Remember, they're covered with fur, so they can overheat probably easier mm-hmm. than you can. Now, let's say you're on foot. What you want to do is you want to wear light materials that reflect heat. You want to stick with cotton or linen. Stay away from black if you can. Uh, Everybody walks around a little dehydrated. And so it's important to drink more fluids than you think you need, even if you're not necessarily very thirsty. You want to shade your face and your neck with wide-brim hats. It might not be the height of fashion, but they'll protect your skin from exposure. Amy, you have a big old wide-brimmed hat. Yep, by a company named Cooley Bar. Right. Now, for your fitness enthusiasts out there, my goodness gracious. Enthusiasts? Enthusiasts. That's a tongue twister. It sure is. And I may have just accidentally cursed. Oh, do not do that. I know. That is terrible. Are you wearing my glasses? I am wearing old man glasses. I don't know why, but... I need to clean them. That font is really smelly. Smelly? Smelly? (laughs) Smelly font? (laughs) really small (laughs) i don't think i could read that even with my glasses you have have really good eyes i don't know why the printer actually 
decided it. to print it. So in, crazy. That's small. like a size two font, honey. <laughs> right, but I needed my I need my notes because basically, you know, I'm already well into the senile dementia phase <laughs> of my life. So what can I tell you? So what else was I saying? Oh, uh, for you fitness enthusiasts out there, for goodness sake, if you got to run or otherwise exert yourself during a hot spell, do it when the temperature's at its bottom. Lowest yeah, absolute point of lowest, the day. Right, which would be really just before sunrise, I would guess. So I think that that would be a good time for you to run if you really yeah, have to run. Yeah, 5 a.m. Right. I'll be up tomorrow. Remind okay. me, honey. I will. And you can feed the chickens, too, <laughs> while you're at it. And by the way, don't forget the sunscreen. So important. Except at 5 a.m. You probably don't need it. <laughs> you have to absolutely, though, make sure that you apply it before you go out in the sun. It has, yes. to, be, it has to absorb into your skin. So you, what you need to do is you need to have it on about 15 minutes before <clears throat> you go out in the sun. And you should reapply it frequently as you sweat. Well, the best thing to do is put it on when you're at home before you put your bathing suit on. Right. But as you sweat... As and you, then reapply right. it as you sweat because you are shedding it as your sweat glands are pushing it, pushing the water out. Your skin will thank you for it. I guarantee it. Or you can buy some Cooley Bar clothes. Cooley Bar. Which I have no affiliation expensive? with whatsoever except that I know that it keeps my very, very, very pale skin from getting roasted when we're out anywhere near the sun. Boating or beaching or whatever. It's the only thing, or snorkeling. It's the only thing that has kept me from being bright red and and bubbly, peely, and second, third degree burns. Well, well if I. Probably not third degree, but <laughs> you never know if I stayed out long enough what would happen. Well, I'll tell you, as for beaching, if I get in the water, there's a good chance that I'll wind up beaching myself. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be in the water because you don't like sharks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just wanted to say, yes. guys, I'm going to do a shameless plug here for our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. You know we've been writing about fish and bird antibiotics all these years. And finally, we put together a book that tells you exactly all about them, what to use for what a medical problem. Mm -hmm. We tell you about bacterial infectious diseases. Remember, antibiotics don't treat viruses, so this book is mostly about bacterial and parasitic diseases that can be killed with the antibiotics you can stockpile in your medical storage. So don't forget to check it out, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. You'll find it at our store at store.doomandbloom.net as well as on amazon.com. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to talk about the survival medic, which is probably why a lot of you are even listening to this podcast and may have been for years or may be new to it. And we're going to discuss the job description of what it really means to be a survival medic, what you need to learn. And also, you know, besides skills, you you do have to have equipment. We're going to talk, if I have time, towards the end about how you can MacGyver things that you might have around the house or near you when an emergency happens. But we're going to try to give you a good list of things that you can acquire and you should get over time. doesn't have to be all at once. But kind of prioritize and make a list and say, okay, this month I'm going to get these things. And 
in a couple months, I'm going to get these things. And so at the end of that plan, however long it may be, you feel that you have a good enough supply count to be able to take care of friends. Maybe you're just your family, maybe certain friends, maybe even enough to take care of your church or your community. That's going to be up to you. And we all know in these normal times that we have right now, we've got the luxury of, of course, the modern and well-equipped medical system. Thank goodness, right? Knock on wood. But in situations where the ambulance is not around the corner, that's going to be really tough. And it can happen to people. And it might just be because you're in a remote setting or you can't get a hold of somebody or in this area where you live right now, where there is the modern system, some disaster happens. I don't know how many disasters we've talked about on these shows over the years, but it depends on where you live and where you travel to. And things happen where you don't expect them also. Like some of these heat waves are in areas that haven't experienced serious problems with heat waves for a very long time. So you just never know. If you're placed in a situation, the medic in the field is going to have to make a major change. You're going to have to just come to a Jesus moment that this is happening and you have to adapt. And that's the big thing. You're going to have to change the way you think. You're going to have to focus instead on stabilization and transport to just being an effective caregiver with limited equipment. Again, it's going to decide, it's going to depend on what you have with you. Maybe you're off somewhere and you've got most of your supplies at home and you don't have all of these things that you have purchased and accumulated over time, but you've got a bag. Hopefully you've got something with you. We should all have some medical supplies with us. I have one or two or even one of our cars has three different bags with medical equipment. I always have them when I'm in the car. I know that I'm not too far from the car. I can go get them if I need them. If we do go on walks, we always bring a little kit with us just in case. I mean, we don't go on three or four day hikes, but if we're going out for a few hours, I want to make sure I have something for a sprained ankle or something that's bleeding, you know, just, you know, the little basics. Now, it's really tough for people who are highly trained professionals. If you're an EMT, a paramedic, you work in an emergency room, you are a doctor, a nurse, a, nar- a physician's assistant. There's a huge range of, of different, an LPN, a medical assistant. You've got a, you know, a lot of training. It's going to be hard to change your mindset to, hey, I can only use this equipment. It's tough. So kind of start thinking about that now. What would I do? What would I need and what would I need to learn? And also another situation where you might be needing a medic or have to be the medic is even just in a remote homestead. If you're far enough away from modern medical facilities, and some parts of this country, even our country here, are hours away from some big hospital. This is a big country, folks. If you've traveled through some of these states that are sort of I don't want to say empty, but maybe just remote. You can drive for miles and miles and miles and hardly see a soul. 
So you don't have to be in some third world country to not have a modern hospital. It could just be that you're just far away. It's been said that treatment's only limited by the equipment that can be carried and the training of the medic. But in long-term survival, that's not necessarily so. Many will realize that extended power outages, again, you could live literally right next to a hospital. But if they don't have electricity, what good are the ventilators, the operating rooms, or any of the electrical electrical equipment that's sitting in that hospital be. They might have some generators, but those might not last very long. If you've got somebody who you need to bag with an ambu, how long are you going to be able to do that? I mean, this is a really scary thing to think about, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom, because the doom and bloom means that you have thought about it, you've planned for what you're going to do and what you need to know and what you need to have with you. So what is appropriate equipment for the survival medic? Although some medical supplies are universal, like bandages, others might depend on the environment, the availability of power, which we just discussed, and the existence of nearby hostiles. In other words, people who might be taking advantage of the fact that the system is down. And that system might not just be the hospitals, but it might be the police. It might be the safety personnel who keep the cities under control and keep down crime. If that's not happening, you could have some bad people rise up and do some terrible things. They had hospitals that were taken over by gangs in New Orleans. So there were hospitals... But you didn't want to take your loved one there because there were bad people who were sitting in there. And also more depends on who compromises the group of people that you're taking care of. Those friends and family, the community members, who are they? Are they members of the Navy SEALs? Are they all doctors? Or are they your parents, your friends, your neighbors, or your children? So you need to think about what group of people you're going to be taking care of, what their level of education is, and also what their medical condition is, what their status, their health status is. All these things you're going to have to think about. In order to know what supplies would make you more effective in your role as the medic then, you need to know what skills that you need to learn. Of course, everyone needs to know how to stop bleeding. I don't care how old you are. If you're, I don't know, 10 years old and older, you should learn how to stop bleeding. We've got lots of classes in lots of places, online, um, classroom style. Learn how to stop bleeding. That should be as important as CPR nowadays, folks. Shouldn't be any different. If you're interested in learning CPR, which everyone should, you should know how to stop bleeding, hand in hand. But You might be surprised at some of the other issues you must be ready to treat. On a daily basis, you're actually more likely to be confronted with infections and chronic illnesses, like even high blood pressure. Think about the elderly. There's a lot of problems with high blood pressure. Those are going to be more frequent than the gunfights at the OK Corral. It's important to know how to deal with trauma, but it's only part 
of the description of the survival medic. It's not the whole enchilada. To become an effective medical resource for the long haul, you're going to want to learn how to take vital signs such as pulse, respiration rates, and blood pressures, perform a thorough physical exam and assessment, place bandages on fresh injuries, but also provide chronic wound care. In other words, it's not just the first time you put it on. You're going to have to change those bandages maybe a couple of times a day for a period of time. And it depends on the age and the health status of that person. Someone who has diabetes and who's 75 years old is going to heal much, much slower than someone who's five years old. Remember that. Treat sprains, fractures, and other orthopedic injuries. And also know how to diagnose all of these things. How to figure out what is actually wrong before you start treating. Treat varying degrees of burns. Identify and treat bacterial, viral, protozoa, and fungal infectious diseases. Actually, our antibiotic book would be helpful for some of those. Treat and heal head, pubic, and body lice, as well as bed bugs, ticks, and other insect bites. Perform a normal delivery of a baby and a placenta. We're not asking you to learn how to do a C-section. Identify venomous snakes and treat the effects of their bites and those of other animals. Treat and identify various causes of abdominal, pelvic, and chest pain. Recognize and treat allergic reactions and anaphylactic shock. Identify and treat sexually transmitted diseases. Evaluate and treat dental problems. Replace fillings, treat abscesses, and perform extractions which sounds like no fun whatsoever. Recognize and treat various skin conditions. Care for the bedridden patient. In other words, doing bed baths, helping someone to go to the bathroom in the bed, changing their sheets without getting them out of the bed, and, of course, treating chronic problems caused from being bedridden for so long, like bed sores and how to move these patients. Establish basic hygiene and sanitary protocols. Where are your group going? Where where are the members of your group going to wash themselves, and where are they going to eliminate waste? Counsel the depressed or anxious patient. You're going to see a lot of this in times of trouble. This is going to be really hard for people. People like routine. They like things the way they are, and they don't want them to change. And when change happens. Some people can adapt easily, like, hey, no problem, I'll do that. Others are going to freak out. So you're going to need to learn to kind of get them through this, through distraction and listening and being a friend. Perform basic medical procedures, such as inserting an intravenous line, if you have that equipment. Close a wound, if it's appropriate, with glue Steri strips, possibly sutures and staples. Again, it's going to depend on whether it's a dirty wound. Learn those skills. When to leave a wound open is really important. Use antibiotics and other drugs carefully, judiciously, not overusing them because this is your resource. You don't want to use it up. 
There's probably not a manufacturer next door to the downed hospital that's producing these drugs right that minute. Improvise and use natural products and objects when supplies run out. So you can see how challenging this all might be to learn. It's going to take you some time. I think a lot of you who are listening probably have heard us speak about a lot of these issues before. We have articles. I'm trying to put up a video every single week. I just put up a heat wave video about 10 minutes before we recorded this. I have a part two of prevention of heat stroke and heat exhaustion. We have filmed how to treat snake bites. Uh, we gave that uh, video footage to a friend of ours to put up on his YouTube channel. And we're going to put that up also on our YouTube channel in a couple of weeks. I want to give him the, the attention first uh, because he was very nice to put it up on his channel. And we appreciate that. But we have filmed how to treat snake bites. Um, I have others planned how basically this list of things you have, we either have them up or plan to do them. <clears throat> so we're really trying to provide you with all of these skills as much as we can. Some of this is in our book, the antibiotic discussions and the, the, how to tell if it's what infection is in the survival medicine handbook and and more of it is also in the antibiotic book that we wrote, Alton's Antibiotics. So we have it written. We have it online in our articles. We have YouTube videos. Uh, the DVDs we have, I now have on, e on a USB. Yay! And you can get that to plug into your computer or also a lot of these smart televisions. I have one television we had to replace recently that has a USB port. All I did was plug it in. The video showed up. I used my remote control and I was able to play our DVD videos on the television. So you don't even have to have cables to hook it up. So we're really trying to help you guys learn um, in different ways. Some people like to read. Some people like to watch. So in addition to learning how to treat and figure out what's going on, I, Joe and I both agree that the most important medical skill is actually how to prevent injuries and illness. Prevent. Prevention. We add to the articles we write and magazines and the website and the YouTube videos and also hopefully you hear it here how to prevent the things that we're talking about. So if we're talking about snake bites, you hear us discuss not reaching your hand into an area where you can't see a brush or behind a, a log, wearing really high boots, just being super careful. So we give you steps on how to prevent things so that you don't have to treat them. So that's going to be something really important for your group is you're going to have to sit everyone down and have an educational seminar at the beginning of the disaster after you've calmed everybody down and hopefully gathered everyone together. One of the first things you need to talk about with everyone is how are we going to keep from getting hurt? We don't want anyone hurt. So you, Jim, who decided you're going to go out and cut up all this wood for our fire so we can cook the fish that Becky caught, Jim, this is what you need to do to be safe while you're doing these things. And Becky, this is how you keep from getting a fish hook stuck in your finger. 
This is what you need to do. And you need to wear wading boots so you don't get bit by a snake that's near the water who's been moved from its natural environment because we've had a disaster. So you need to discuss all of these things with everyone. Maybe Becky's not the only one fishing. Maybe four or five other people are rotating doing that. Maybe Jim is cutting wood today, but um, Sarah's going to cut wood tomorrow. So she needs to hear the same thing. So you need to have prevention seminars. It's almost like uh, OSHA safety comes in. And you need to have all of these bullet points. Think of the things that your folks are going to be doing that they aren't used to doing. Maybe they've never done in their whole life ever. And so if you just mention, let's say someone is cooking by the fire. If you guys have those fire safety gloves that are long up to the elbows, use those. The per whoever is cooking needs to have those gloves and they need to be nearby and others need to remind them, hey, don't forget to use the gloves. Not in a nasty way, but if we all just remind each other, help each other remember the little details of those seminars, then we're going to keep each other from getting sick, from getting hurt, from getting injured. So you don't have to use up the antibiotics or the tourniquet or the gauze or any of the other stuff. If you don't do this, you're going to have a lot of people coming to you sick and injured. And that's not the way to go. So prevention, prevention, prevention. So what do you need to carry? If you're just doing for yourself, let's say you're just by yourself on a hike even, that's usually called a first aid kit, individual first aid kit. It was a nickname, and this is the military, IFAC. So in this bag, you're going to have simple things to deal with common, say, trail injuries. Again, I'm talking about, you know, you're just going for a walk. If you have had the disaster and the person's going off to do something by themselves, you might want to also include things for bleeding. Because if they get hurt outside of where they can contact you or anyone can hear what's happening, they need to be able to stop their bleeding themselves. If you're going for a hike, non-disaster, it's not a bad idea to also carry these things. They make them very lightweight. The tourniquets are super lightweight. There's small pressure dressings. Um, hemostatic gauze comes in different sizes. Sterile bandages don't weigh much. Um, an ACE wrap would be really handy. Blisters. If you're going to be walking for a while, moleskin would be good. Burn gel, again, if you're going to be possibly starting a fire when you're out, you might want to have some burn gel. Antiseptics. For any of those cuts and scrapes, you definitely want antiseptics. And then, of course, the Band-Aids to cover it. Mylar blanket, if you get stuck somewhere, you're going to want to keep yourself warm. It can also, if you have more than one, you can have a, a little shelter. You can also signal people with Mylar blankets. Uh, they're multi-purpose. And tape. Tape is going to depend on what you want. There's adhesive tape. There's waterproof tape. There's Gorilla tape. <laughs> there's duct tape. So it just depends on... Uh, what you would like or variety there's uh, the next level would be the medic kit it's a little bit bigger so while foraging in hostile or unknown territory you should carry items that mirror somewhat uh, a military medic bag especially in unknown territory and this includes 
multiples of the individual first aid kit, so not just one of each, but several, but also additional items like chest seals, uh, possibly if you know how to use them, decompression needle, nasal airways, 36-inch malleable splints, splints, also known as SAM splints, and more. Those with training and, again, access to being able to get IV fluids could bring some bags of normal saline and IV setups. Just remember that fluid weighs a lot. So each liter of IV fluid actually weighs 2.2 pounds. So you start carrying a couple of those and you're going to weigh yourself down. The long-term medic must have a base of operations to work. So you've accumulated a lot of things over time. You need a central location. You need a place where people know if they get hurt or injured that this is where they're going to go to be evaluated. It might not be staffed by only you, the survival medic. You need to train other people. You can call them assistant survival medics if you want. If they haven't thought about this prior to the disaster or whatever situation brought you into this. But you need to expand what's in your brain to other people. So in other words, you need to try to download as much of your memory information into the brains of other people around you. Because what if you get hurt? Or what if you're off doing something and, and you can't get back in time and you have to sleep out somewhere and you're just not around? Plus, you do need to sleep. You can't be under constant bombardment from everyone around you with this problem and that problem. You need downtime. You need me time and you need sleep time. And that means you can only probably function for six to eight hours in this role that you have. So you need some mini-me's. Hopefully you can make some mini-me's now, but if you can't, you need to do it then. So you're going to need to teach people at least simple things. If you've got a cut or wound, this is what I want you to do with it. Blah, 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 blah. Teach them what you've learned. Maybe you can have some worksheets. Maybe you can um, give them a book to read and follow, some, some papers, some files to say, okay, if I have a wound, this is what... Um, the survival medic wants me to do and they'll follow those rules and if it goes haywire then then they know they have to call you but at least you'll be able to have some me time and some sleep time so the area in the retreat or the camp needs to be designated as just call it the field hospital I mean that's basically what it's going to be if you don't have another hospital that's what it is have a different place a little further away for the sick room. So if you get the the person who's contagious who comes to you, you're not going to keep them in that same area with somebody who's just coming to you with a sprained ankle or possibly a broken finger. Get that sick person elsewhere. So have a different location for the sneezing, the coughing, the vomiting, the diarrhea. That person needs to go somewhere else nearby but far enough away where they're not going to give that to someone else it's kind of an isolation area that room needs to be uh, furnished with cots something that's easily wiped down you're going to need an examination table counter space storage um, and things that will be comforting for the patient uh, maybe a bell 
or walkie-talkie to talk into to make sure that they can they know they can communicate with others if there's not one someone standing next to them magazines puzzles um, playing cards things to keep their mind off of what's happening to them comfort you want to make them comfortable and you also want to make sure they have some ventilation that's important um, some items in your backpack sick room and hospital tent are listed here I don't think I have time to go through all of this it's not a complete list the survival medicine handbook has I think about seven or eight pages dedicated to really really detailed lists of wow if you just want to go ape crazy <laughs> with getting all kinds of equipment I think I've put together an amazing list Here's just a few of them. For protect for personal protection gear, you need gloves. Try to get nitrile because you want to make sure that you're not causing more problems, which means there are people who are allergic to latex. And so by using the nitrile or the hypoallergenic variety, you're not going to cause a latex allergy. So get those. You can get non-sterile. And you can also get sterile. Sterile is more expensive. You should use those if you're closing a wound up. So if you're stapling or suturing, you want to use sterile gloves because you don't want to introduce your hand bacteria or whatever is on your hands into the wound. That's super important. You can use regular gloves if you're just cleaning up a wound or cleaning up other things. But if you're going to be touching the inside of a wound, you should try to try to use sterile gloves. That's not always possible. Like I said, they're a little more expensive. So you can buy really large boxes of the non-sterile nitrile gloves. And you know what? You do what you can. Masks. There are, again, several different kinds. Make sure that you get the surgical mask. So if someone is in that sick room that we're talking about with sneezing, coughing, vomiting that's the person you want to put that mask on those are really really cheap you can get a ton of those they're usually blue with like ear loops that go behind the ears or maybe sometimes ties behind the head super cheap they'll keep that virus inside of the mask instead of shooting it across the room into your face and then great the survival medic is now sick super affordable also, N95s are what you want to put on as the healthy person so that you don't breathe in what's floating around. So if you need to go in and take care of that person, you're going to put on that N95 properly and you're going to wear this. You also want to have aprons, gowns, and face shields, again, for the caretaker in an epidemic problem or a pandemic problem or, again, with somebody who's got something contagious. You want to have eye, hand, and foot protection, emphasizing the importance of the use of goggles, work gloves, and boots. Again, we talked about prevention will help prevent many injuries and contaminations. I've got a lot more, folks. I'm going to have to finish this next week. This is Nurse Amy and Dr. Bones with the Survival Medicine Hour and doomandbloom.net. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's YouTube channel. Check it out, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.